So I felt I had lots of unfinished business. I had a different take on what I thought the opportunity was. And by going out on my own, I had a blank canvas that I could kind of work from to try and you know, do what I thought was right. The Architects of Business on Joe, in partnership with the EY Entrepreneur of the Year programme, telling the story of Ireland's leading entrepreneurs across the island of Ireland. Time for one more, but when you sell one successful business and instantly try to repeat it, you know you're probably in the right game. This is the Architects of Business, Joe's weekly series of interviews with leading entrepreneurs in partnership with EY, Entrepreneur of the Year. I'm Ty Genright, and today I'll be speaking with Jack Teeling, who put his old family name on a new brand of whiskey. This is not the Teeling's first rodeo. Jack's father, John, is a prolific businessman and a hard act to follow. I literally said I'd never work with my father or for my father because of, you know, just the family dynamics of father and son. And uh, so I was trying to figure out what to do. And he said, I'll come in for a couple of months. And, uh, you know, nearly 12 years later, I was still there. (laughs) The Teelings and Whiskey go way back, although the companies they've built are relatively young. I, I was emotionally involved like you know I had, I had still a lot of work that I wanted to do um, I, I still a lot of things to prove to myself and to, to I suppose the industry that uh, you know there was a demand for a good strong independent Irish whiskey. Having sold the first family distillery to a big global drinks giant Jack wasn't ready to play by someone else's rules. I had basically told the president CEO of, of Beam Inc which was billion you know one of the biggest drinks companies in the world that I, if the deal went through I wasn't staying, I was gone. I had no intention of working in a large multinational. It's not for me. Today we'll hear about the challenges and the opportunities in starting out all over again. Jack, thanks so much for uh, coming in and talking to us today. You haven't have to come very far, have you? No, just around the corner. Just around the corner. Um, what's, it, what's it like kind of starting a whiskey brand from, from scratch like, like you did a few years ago? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's got its challenges because it's a very old traditional industry where a lot of brands have been around for for hundreds of years, um, and uh, you know I think people perceive uh, you know authenticity heritage as you know part and parcel of, of a whiskey brand. So so when we were starting off, uh, you know I was had that in mind, um, and I, but I wanted to do something different. But it's important to have an anchor to the past, and I was lucky enough that our family had a long-standing involvement in whiskey um, going back to the 18th century, back to 1782, when Walter Teeling had a small craft distillery just around the corner from where we actually are, um, Marble Lane. Um, and I used that as the building block for what we did. So if you look at our label, it says since 1782, but we wanted to be respectful to that past, but confident enough to do it in a more modern way. So you're blessed with a heritage that you can uh, play upon and build upon. Um, but I guess, you know, the whiskey market has changed so much. And we were just saying a few minutes ago that in, in a bygone age, it was just seen as an alpha's drink. And now, you know, the last 15, 20 years, it's really come into its own once again. And it's an increasingly crowded space for a new brand to try and crack through, isn't it? Especially here in Ireland. Yeah, I suppose I set up in 2012. It was, it was slightly different there. There was only four distilleries at that time. Um, uh, we had just recently uh, sold um, a previous family involvement in Cooley Distillery to Beam. Um, so there was lots of multinationals in the category 
but I saw a chance there wasn't any really kind of independent kind of craft orientated premium uh, Irish whiskies out there so so at that time it was kind of for me there was lots of white space um, which we stepped into but over the subsequent five to six years it's totally changed uh, and now there's near 20 distilleries uh, with another 20 in different planning so it's becoming a lot more noisy a lot more crowded um, uh, for new entrants coming in but that's the opportunity that's where the category is going it's uh, segmenting it's premium, premiumizing there's a lot more breadth and choice happening and consumers are demanding that so it's been led by consumers and I suppose us in the industry are just responding to that. Is it, is it good to see it getting noisier and more crowded or did you prefer it when you were the, the upstart challenger and you had that uh, sector all to yourself? Yeah, good question. Uh, I think uh, there's a balance. Uh, it's nice when um, um, when people think of new Irish whiskey to think of you and we're no longer new um, so it, it creates more challenge uh, you know to, to capture people's imagination uh, it drives us to be more innovative and try to do things a little bit different um, um, but you know I suppose uh, we sometimes look at the opportunity here as just in Ireland and see what's happening but it's a global opportunity uh, and the real big market for Irish whiskey is the US and um, and it's cascading into Canada and Mexico and other places like that. Um, and Asia is wide open as well. So so there's lots of opportunities. And for us, uh, what we're trying to do is create... A- to, to create a global brand um, and we're active you know across the world and, and hopefully ahead of some of these new entrants in some of those new areas let's go uh, a good bit into the past Jack because uh, you, you talked about the, the history of your family in the whiskey business and just the, the history of your family in, in, in business because you grew up in a very very business focused family there's not many people in this country who say their dad's in the diamond business yeah yeah so it's not only the diamond business and the zinc and the gold and the oil and gas and, and you know the whiskey and everything else and was a lecturer in UCD so it was kind of an unusual uh, upbringing but it's normal to me um, I didn't think it was unusual um, but I suppose uh, I was people I meet a lot of people who have been lectured by my father um, when I say I've been lectured for 42 years by my father so <laughs> I've taken stuff in by osmosis So what did you learn in those lectures from dad? You know, and that's the thing is like you know if you ask me I, I don't you know it's hard to answer but it's probably as you said it just comes across quite uh, uh, intuitive and you know one thing that he did say when I was working for him uh, is that as a leader or as a manager people always come to you to make decisions and uh, he was very keen on, on, on instilling the ability to make decisions with imperfect information which I think is a, is, a, is a key sign of any manager or leader or entrepreneurs to be able to deal with uncertainty and take all the information um, that's at a hand and make a calculated decision. So do you think he was grooming you to kind of take over in in in, in his variety of enterprises. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I you know I I did probably he was trying to instill what he learned himself. But uh, um, I suppose it was never a, a roadmap into into the, into a family business or anything like that. You, and, and you didn't follow uh, whatever. Even if he had been laying out a map for you, you didn't follow it at the get go. Anyway, at the beginning. Well, I said I literally said I'd never work with my father or for my father because of you know just the family dynamics of father and son and uh, um, 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 I was interested in finance as my first uh, kind of uh, working um, involvement and I suppose I got that from his listed companies and, and, and being exposed to that um, and I worked in, in the industry in, in Dublin for a couple of years and then I went to Australia and I worked in finance there and I travelled around for a good few months, came back in a great frame of mind and uh, owed a bit of money so I was trying to figure out what to do and he said I'll come in for a couple of months and uh, you know over 
you know, nearly 12 years later, I was still there. Like, you know. So from never work with dad to, yeah. all right, sure, I'll give it a go for a while. What, why were you so opposed at the beginning? Well, you, uh, I don't know what your, your family dynamic is with your father, but, like, you know, it's, it's people... You know, I, I suppose I was I was always seen as the awkward one. Um, not very good at taking direction. <laughs> no, I don't like being told what to do. Um, and, uh, you know, I just didn't feel like I wanted to work in, in an environment where you had that extra family dynamic. But in, in, in hindsight, mm. uh, that was probably just me being a little bit immature. So um, some people see family businesses as, as kind of easy street, that there's a path laid out for them. Yeah, I wouldn't say. I'd say it it's, can be even more challenging um, uh, mentally as more than anything else. I remember when uh, I, I started working, my, my, my girlfriend, now wife, um, was like, what are you doing? You're mad. It's going to drive you insane. And, uh, you know, as I said, uh, um, I did in the first six months go, what am I doing? Like, this is not the right thing to do. But I suppose I got exposed to Irish whiskey. I saw the opportunity. I saw this unique Irish industry that has to use Irish air, Irish water, um, um, and that was, you know, always going to survive globalization. And, you know, um, the opportunity was, was, was great. And I decided that I'd turn my back on finance and pushing numbers around the screen and getting something that actually made something that you could get your hands around um, and, uh, and take it from there. It certainly sounds like more fun, doesn't it? Whiskey versus finance. <laughs> well, they both have their advantages <laughs> now. Um, um, the finance industry can be fun as well, but uh, uh, it's different. It's very different. Okay. So the, the business then was the, the Cooley Distillery. Mm -hmm. What was its kind of, its mission as it were? I mean, it was set up in the 80s, wasn't it? Kind of before this recent renaissance in whiskey and at a time when the market was really, you know, strangled by the big boys. Yeah, there was a monopoly there at the time. So there was only one producer and uh, um, the industry was not as dynamic. You know, it was very early stages in the evolution and uh, in 1987 when it was set up, uh, Irish Distillers was a listed company um, uh, and it was soon sold to Pernod Ricard um, and uh, I suppose from the 90s on the new golden era was formed but in saying that it was still very very challenging for, for Cooley Distillery so from 1987 to, to really when I joined around 2001 um, they had some very tough times to survive um, um, but they did an amazing job and, and I think it's not until you actually build your own distillery and build your own business that you appreciate all the hardships that go and all the, the hard work that's gone into it. Um, and, uh, you know, I suppose it wasn't until 2012, 13. Like, I took it for granted in 2001 to um, um, all the work that was done beforehand. Were you, were you kind of privy at this stage, you know, to the, the, the difficulties, the challenge that it was to take on uh, the big boy, as it were, in, in Irish distilling? Kind of, because, you know, in fairness, parents try and insulate you from a lot of the stress and strains, but, you know, it's sometimes hard to, to do. I remember we were on holiday in, in Africa, um, uh, it was to do with the, the resource companies, and uh, we were down um, um, playing poker, because uh, not much to do, you know, in Africa when you're on a safari late at night, so just as a family playing poker, and I think my father got a call from the bank saying that they were pulling all their loans, um, and that uh, literally Cooley could potentially go down the drains, and he had to come up with a solution and leave early and, and go home and all that sort of stuff like that so I suppose we were exposed to that but you don't really understand when you're that young uh, the implications of some of the challenges that are actually there but uh, um, um, there was definitely lots of talk around dinner tables about the challenges and, tri and the tribulations that mm. go with you know starting something new What, what do you think was the, the, the turning point for, for, for whiskey? What made it hipster? 
Well, yeah, I think it's it's when it's a monopoly and there's not enough competition, you know, it tends to be stale and stuck in the rut. Um, so it was really two triggers. One was was um, Cooley Distillery being set up and, and kind of shaking things up, and secondly was uh, Pernod Ricard buying. Um, the, the heritage brands and focusing on one that wasn't really a big brand so Tradition Jemison was probably the smaller of the likes of Powers, Paddies and Bushmills but they saw an opportunity for this lighter style more approachable style of, of whiskey um, and um, um, they focused on Jemison that didn't have all the baggage and they made it an absolutely tremendous success um, and I think they've broken down a lot of the perceptions that Irish whiskey in the 60s and 70s was heavy and give you a hangover and stuff like that they've reinvented Irish whiskey is this easy to drink accessible entry point into whiskey in general um, and that's happening again now there's more competition as we said over the last five or six years and Perno are responding and they're being very innovative as well so I think what we're doing as a category is is mapping out the next 20 30 years of potential growth opportunities as we you know hopefully capture you know people who enter through through the market leader they have other points of discovery so they stay within a category and if you like whiskey you tend to drink it mm-hmm. for a long time um, so hopefully the consumers are coming in now we can have them for the next 20, 30, 40 years and they'll as they get older drink less but better and more premium stuff So you've been mentioning the, the, the whole crop of new distillers that are there are out there yourself among them and, and Cooley once upon a time is there an inevitability that ultimately they get taken over by one of the big boys? Uh, I, I like what happened with 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 Cooley and when you sold up to to Beam. Well, the bigger companies they are not able to build brands from from scratch. It's very unusual for them to do that. They like to buy established brands have proven that they can make it work and then provide the oxygen really to take it to the next level and if you talk to any of the big companies they call themselves brand custodians because most of the brands they didn't they didn't build they, didn't they bought yeah. so that's why they're so old they've been around for a long time they've, they've been passed around um, for, for from one company to the next um, so I see there will be more acquisitions um, um, but you know there's only so many uh, bigger companies who haven't got into the category so um, I think uh, you know maybe the pace of that might slow down um, um, given that over the last five years some of the biggest drinks companies in the world have come into the category being Diageo have come back in um, you have Brown Foreman who, are, who have come in there as well um, so it's 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 becoming quite crowded for still a small enough category how did you know that it was 2012 wasn't it when you sold to 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 beam um how did you know that was the right time what was it that said to you right i think this is the moment well it wasn't my decision to sell i'll be honest with you if we could step back a little bit um um it probably wasn't the right time to sell i'll be honest with you in hindsight like you know given what's happened like since the category's nearly doubled um in, in two years but at that time 2012 um or two, it started really in 2011 um there was no real entry point into the category if you wanted to get into irish whiskey cooley was the only game in town and uh, i think a lot of uh, bigger companies saw the opportunity um and they started engaging with us so we, we had three multinationals talking to us at the time um cooley it was a plc and uh, we had 300, 400 shareholders. Uh, we ran it like a PLC. It wasn't run like a private family business. Um, so when someone provided a, a fair deal, it had to be put to the shareholders. At that time, they were of a certain age. They've lost their pensions, their banks, you know, the property market was on the ground. So they, they took it with, with, with open hands. Um, and in hindsight, it was good for, for, for me. It was good for the company. But, you know, the first couple of months, I was probably in... 
a little bit shock uh, because I'd only become the managing director in 2010. So it was still early stages in in, the, in my ability to really drive the business forward. And we nearly doubled our turnover, you know, over that two year period between when I became managing director and when it was sold. So I felt I had lots of unfinished business. Uh, I, I had a, a, you know, a different take on what I thought the opportunity was. And by going out on my own, I had a blank canvas that I could kind of work from to try and, you know, do what I thought was right. Well, why, why did you find that frustrating? You know, I mean, okay, you were the MD of a fast growing business and you were kind of largely the, you know, at the top of your own fiefdom. And then suddenly you became the <laughs> board of directors, like you know. And then suddenly and the chairman became my father. So, <laughs> but you you were the man, you know, with the the hands in the accelerator or the foot in the accelerator. Uh, and then I guess suddenly you become a subsidiary of a of a big global giant. What was that? culture uh, change like was it a shock yeah uh, well I had basically told the present CEO of, of Beam Inc which was billion you know one of the biggest drinks companies in the world that I, if the deal went through I wasn't staying I was gone and I had negotiated a supply contract of whiskey to allow me to stay within the category I had no intention of working in a large multinational it's not for me um, um, and uh, you know when you're cross functional and you can drive the business you know be it from production to marketing financial side of things to become a small cog in this big machine wasn't for me um, uh, uh, my so brother you, you my brother stayed on for uh, a year and a half afterwards but yeah. you know I left after four months I had to stay for four months as part of the the, the, the purchase but that was it I was gone you, you felt that even before the transaction happened no definitely yeah definitely like you know because what I felt I could bring and what we were doing I found I, my perception was it's going to be very hard for a big multinational to carry that on and it proved to be the case um, 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 they wanted something that was quite simple, not too innovative, you know, to work, force it through their model. Um, and, uh, you know, I would say um, a lot of the good stuff that we were doing kind of got lost by the wayside um, um, in terms of the acquisition. But it seemed like, you know, when Centauri merged with Beam or they bought Beam, they've taken a longer term approach and are building again from, from where we were. In those four months, so the, the period when you had to stay on, uh, you know, was it as bad as you expected? It was it was it was like a black hole. You had no idea what was going on or what what we were meant to do. But my role was unfortunately to um, um, exit a lot of partnerships that we had. Um, so the whole point of when large companies tend to buy uh, smaller brands, they want to push it through their route to market and capture all the value chain. Um, and uh, we had a lot of independent smaller distributors around the world and um, they wanted me to fire them um, but in so you, were, you were actually you were in charge of sending away all the customers that you'd yeah. hard you know fought hard yeah. to build up down through the years very uncomfortable um, um, situation but look I had to be done and that's unfortunately what they wanted me to do um, so I was dealing with uh, a junior solicitor in 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 Spain of all places and they gave me strict instructions I wasn't allowed to go and meet my customers I had to send it by email and then not communicate by phone because in case I say something stupid that would lead them potentially liable and stuff like that but look that was it was a necessary evil unfortunately and you've managed to rebuild those bridges, I would imagine, since then. Yeah, well, to some, to some state, like, you know, a lot of, I'd say, around 60%, 70% of the customers that I have now are people that I had relationships uh, originally with. Um, but some of them basically have never forgiven me for, um, um, I suppose, ending that original relationship. But listen, one thing that always struck me about that, you know, deal, and I, and I watched it at the time and saw how quickly you got back into the market. I mean, very often these come with, you know, caveats that, you know, you, you can't go any 
anywhere near the whiskey business <laughs> yeah. for at least something like whatever it is, three or five years. In your case, it was just four months. Yeah. How, how did you wangle that? I'm not sure if they, they just had very low opinions of us or something <laughs> like that. Like, but they got rid of everyone. Like, you know, all the directors were kind of uh, pushed out, uh, which I think was a bit naive on their side, I'll be honest with you. I, I don't think that was the right thing to do. Um, but um, as part of, of the negotiations, I got a heads of agreement on a supply contract. So if I was a customer of theirs, there could be no non-compete. So it kind of worked out quite well. Um, you know, and, and, and the, the name Teal & Whiskey came because in November 2011, I had to come up with basically a name for a company that didn't exist. Um, and I said, oh, Teal & Whiskey is a grand name. I didn't know I'd actually launched the brand Teal & Whiskey later. Um, um, so it worked out quite quite well. A great end. name indeed. Jack, listen, lots more to talk about. So stay with us on The Architects of Business because still to come, more lessons from dusting yourself off and starting again. You're listening to The Architects of Business on Joe in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year. Visit eoy.ie to find out more about the programme and this year's finalists. Get in touch. Mail us on thearchitectsofbusiness at joe.ie. So Jack, then you roped your brother in to starting Teeling Whiskey or to, 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 to getting a brand off the ground. Um, what was the kind of the, the mark that you wanted to make by yourselves? What was going to be different about Teeling versus Cooley and all the others? Yeah, I, I think wanted to represent you know, Ireland, Dublin in the 21st century, which is, you know, a very cosmopolitan, modern city. Um, a lot of the, the brands were out there were very heritage oriented, Rolling Hills, the Red Setter and all that kind of stuff like that. And being a dub um, uh, didn't really sit that well with me in terms of what, you know, I could see it was happening. You know, Dublin is its own little epicenter. And uh, um, I wanted to have something that, that, that I could be proud of, but also younger Irish people could could. Uh, relate to as well and be proud of and represent so, Ireland in a different way. So you wanted it to be modern but also play in the, 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 the old Teeling heritage. Is that Was that a bit of a, a, a tussle as well, it were? Well see the thing is it, there are certain parameters within whiskey um, that you have to operate within so you can't go too crazy and otherwise people will perceive there's something wrong with the liquid. Um, um, I think people want you know that anchor but you know, I think then you're free to be a little bit more creative around the liquid and, and your messages. So we just say we're the latest generation of teelings doing, you know, involving the category and putting our own stamp as something modern and, and, and tr- you know, not too overly traditional. So you're saying that you can't quite be as, as you know, zany or even, even as up to date as some of the craft beer brands because people will think, people will expect different things from their whiskey, is that it? Yeah, I think so. Like, we were involved in a brand called Michael Collins. It uh, was uh, created by a company that, that um, called Sydney Frank um, in the US, and they had created the brand Grey Goose Vodka, and they sold it for billions to Bacardi, um, and they wanted to get into Irish whiskey, and they, they, they tried to apply the same model they used for Grey Goose to Irish whiskey, and they had a very elaborate bottle, uh, looked crazy, and... Um, we're like, eh, that's a bit mad. Like, you know, is that going to work? We said, oh, these guys must know what they're doing. But but they didn't um, because they misinterpreted what consumers would, how they would react to the bottle. Um, and it was they were it was over-engineered and the, the perception was the liquid must be crap because it was a fatty-looking bottle. So, you know, there's these type of things that when you're dealing with consumers that you have to um, deal with. And as I said, if you're in vodka, you, you're free to do whatever you want. If you're in craft beer, you're nearly free to do whatever you want. But within... Whiskey, it's a little bit, you know, um, you can innovate, but you still have to 
understand what people expect. So when you were starting, I mean, you effectively had, what was it, more than a decade's experience of of making mistakes and, and having great success in, in, in developing a whiskey brand. I mean, was this, you were off to a good start, weren't you? Yeah, I think that, you know, I looked at myself and I was looking if I took some money off the table when the deal was sold. And I was thinking, like, what, what, what could I do? Like, you know, uh, what do I know? At that stage, all I knew was whiskey, um, but the opportunity was so was bigger than when, where it was, you know, when I first started. So, so it was screaming out to me. It was a no brainer. Yeah, because um, you know, you know all the right people. And you know exactly who to pick up the phone to, and and you know, and you, you have those established relationships. Yeah, and, I, and and there was going to be a discovery brand that was going to merge, and I felt I had the best insight because I was the one at the co-face seeing what was working what wasn't working um, that I could apply that to the new venture um, and I had good strong relationships in the, the category I had a supply of whiskey I knew where more whiskey was if I needed to buy it um, and uh, you know as I said I, I was emotionally Involved, like you know, I had I had still a lot of work that I wanted to do. Um, I, I still a lot of things to prove to myself, and to, to I suppose the industry that uh, you know there was a demand for a good, strong, independent Irish whiskey. Is that one of the big obstacles to actually getting a new whiskey brand off the ground? The fact that you, you can't make this stuff overnight. Yeah, and and, and again, you have to go out there and convince somebody who's who's going to be a competitor of yours to, to to release some of their stuff. Yeah, and I think that it's a supply chain management is key because you can buy parcels a little bits of whiskey and, and sell them but there's no sustainability to that so if you build a brand you have to be able to sustainably that's the taste the same that's the taste the same or you have to be able to, to to know when you're talking to a customer in a market like the US saying that I'll have supply as you grow for the next number of years and that's at the moment that's very very difficult to have um, but we did it differently so we invested heavily in inventory from from really the start. So 2012, 2013, we bought as much whiskey as we could get our hands on. Um, we went about building a brand and, and tapping into the route to market opportunities that were there around the world. And then we went about building the distillery. But we had a vision for the distillery from day one as well. So it allowed us to get up and running, building the brand, building awareness. And by the time the distillery was built, we already were, I think, selling in 50 different export markets. So you knew all the right people to pick up the phone to and you knew what you were doing. But were there any obstacles in the early days to, to, to getting off the ground? What was the worst thing you went through? <laughs> the worst thing I went through, I think the, the un, unknowns around the, the distillery and the ability to, to build a distillery. Um, one was trying to find a suitable location. Um, I remember even back in 2012, I'd, I was trying to, where could you go? Um, and where could you get you know land that would allow you to to do what you need to do for, for having a manufacturing base? So it's not a visitor center; it's a distillery with a visitor center. There's a lot of different projects that are as a visitor center with a distillery, so they lead that way. But this had to be our production base. Um, and I, you know, not being a property guy, to be honest with you, I uh, was a bit naive around going and I looked in the docklands and all this kind of stuff, like all this like available land, but not knowing how to navigate through it. And what do you need for what you wanted to build? So we were looking for a minimum of uh, um, around 20,000 square foot that had a loading bay, that had the right zoning, that, you know, um, wasn't too attached to residential, you know, all that kind of stuff like that. There was very specific kind of checklist. Um, and um, it was hard, even in 2012, with the commercial property on its knees. People just didn't want to sell. 
they didn't want to sell because they were going to crystallize big losses and there were a lot of for sale signs but things weren't for sale um, um, but lucky enough we stumbled across uh, the site in Newmarket um, indirectly and um, um, through a local contact in Clontarf we managed to get a heads of agreement um, and it was subject to planning and that was that was the biggest hurdle because at that stage, every, they wanted to push manufacturing out of the city centre, you know, into more industrial areas outside the city rather than allow people back in. And the original master plan for where we ended up was for high rise, you know, accommodation, offices and so forth. So so we were trying to change that. Um, and, and that proved a lot more difficult and a lot more uncertain um, um, and it was creating a lot of uncertainty on our long-term plans because you have to plan a good while out five to ten years really in this industry but if you don't have a distillery we could sell all our stock and all of a sudden end up with nothing um, no whiskey um, a brand that people want but we can't supply um, so it took us around a year and a half to kind of deal through a lot of that uncertainty. And yet the, the site you eventually found is, is kind of like the, the old home of, of, of whiskey making or one of the old homes of whiskey making in Dublin. Yeah. it's What, what a delightful team. coincidence. Well, yeah, well, look, it was, <laughs> and, uh, it was the Liberties because we wanted, wanted uh, the original plan was the Liberties, but we felt it was hard to find a site. And actually it was dealing with a, a gentleman called Kieran Rose in the Dublin City Council who kind of encouraged us to look at that area. And when I dug into the history of Newmarket and Newmarket Square um, and all the industries that were associated, which was milling, um, breweries, distilleries, um, uh, it just made sense. And we could find a suitable site um, and a willing vendor uh, who'd work with us. And, and, and thankfully, it's, it's helped kickstart a lot of the rejuvenation around the area as well. So how big a part of that brand building effort is, is having the, the right factory, right distillery in the right place uh, and, and creating that visitor experience? Well, for us and what we are as a brand, it was, it was critical. Um, and uh, you wanted an urban distillery, a modern distillery. So I suppose it took inspiration from what was happening, particularly in the US and other you know cities around the world, be it London. Um, I, I think the nail in the coffin for what I wanted to do was when a London distilling company set up and they were going to make whiskey in the city centre of London. And I said, what the hell is going on? Why is no one doing it in Dublin? Dublin mm-hmm. has all this. It is the cradle of urban whiskey distillation. It was, you know, from here in the 19th century when Irish whiskey was so strong, it was the Dublin distilleries that were driving the, the, the industry. And the last Dublin distillery shut its doors in 1976. So ever since then, all that kind of provenance and heritage has, has been disappearing. Um, so it was, it was crying out for someone to do it. And there's been a renaissance, obviously, in whiskey and also a big renaissance and tourism to, to, to this town. Exactly. And and what we want to do is we are global. We don't have global marketing budgets. We can't do TV advertising. We wanted experiential marketing. Um, we want people to come to see us, experience teeling whiskey in our distillery and take that away in, around the world. And we wanted somewhere that wasn't, let's say, on Grafton Street, but it was a little bit off the beaten track where you could find. And that's what we luckily have. And, and, and in an industry where the US market is, is probably the most important to you, obviously very important you get lots of uh, whiny Yankee tourists walking through your doors. How, how did you you know, convince them to come to you, a brand that they prob- they might not have heard of, versus going to, to you know, the, the Jemison distillery in Dublin? Yeah, I think when people 
come to Ireland now. They want to discover something different. They want to, you know, it's nearly a talking point, a bragging point to, to bring home and tell. Um, and, uh, you know, I think Jemison and Guinness are destinations for the brand. But there's a, a, a new, you know, generation who want to discover something different. They want to see an operational, a real process. A real distillery, because that's not, that's what you that's have. That's our point what, of difference. What your competition um, and, you does know, not. And, and that's what we provide. So we didn't, we don't see ourselves competing. We're a different experience. So you can go to both and enjoy both and, and see two, two different sides of it. Um, and I think people nowadays do so much research before they come to a destination. So they actually, you know, have already self-selected to do something different. Um, and also we, we lobbied hard to get on to the hop on, hop off bus and integrate ourselves into the tourist community um, to ensure that, uh, you know, we're being presented um, to visitors when they come to the city. And also helped by the fact that in, in this age, uh, people would rather visit a kind of a brand they might not have heard of as opposed to the, the one that everyone knows. Well, like, like let's say they're the market leaders, Jemison, they're phenomenal success, but you can get in every bar in the US or nearly around the world at this stage. It's, it's a must-have item. Um, but so when you come to Dublin, or come to Ireland what are you going to do are you going to drink something that you drink at home or are you going to actually ask a bartender for something different um, and uh, you know that discovery element is where we play so listen let's park work for the time being or actually no let's let's talk a little bit about okay. you know the contrast between your life now versus you know previous lives um you know, you're in the finance industry for how long was it? It wasn't too long. It was only around two and a half years. Do you think, you know, do you work harder now as an entrepreneur or harder back then when you were wheeling and dealing? Well, I worked in the dealing room um, and uh, when I first started, my I, I couldn't even, you know, it was not a thing as lunch break. I had to go get other, other people's lunches and uh, uh, it was a different type of experience altogether. Uh, you know, I enjoyed it. I thought it was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was an interesting time, but I probably didn't see a long-term future for, for myself within it. I should never have done a master's in finance. It was probably a stupid thing to do, but you only find out things afterwards. Um, um, so um, I think you definitely work differently. Um, um, but now when you're fully in control or even when you're in, in a family business, you never switch off. So, you know, I think you clock in, you clock out when you're kind of working um, um, in a bank. Uh, you're not really, you're, you're probably thinking about it, but you're not as involved or emotionally vetted. Um, um, but now it's, you know, it's 24-7. It's what you think about. Uh, well, so going to bed, and what the first thing you think about when you get up in the morning. So you spent uh, a long time resisting working with your dad. What's it like working with your brother? <laughs> Should ask my brother. <laughs> I'm the older brother, so it's a, a different dynamic. Um, <clears throat> he worked for a little while and beam and then he came across I think the hardest thing was probably the first six months when he came um, across and probably me giving a bit of control over to him and all that kind of dynamics it was a couple of heated conversations after um, um, a couple of nights in the town that uh, had to go through just to um, um, to understand how we work together because uh, I suppose he, he worked in Cooley but he worked for me in Cooley and then you know I suppose I had to ensure that we worked together um, but uh, he came across at a time when we needed more people. We needed more tealings out there spreading the world. So, so it's good having more tealings to be able to go out around the world and uh, represent the brand in the right way. And also the level of trust. So no matter who you hire, um, uh, they could be you know, the best workers. You, you don't trust anyone. Uh, as much as a family member who's equally as invested in, in, in the, the company. Is that a bit strange, though, when, you know, there's always sibling rivalry um, and the dynamic where you're the boss at work, but then whenever you're at the weekend and at a, you know, family party, you have to be 
equals again. Well, I think it changes that dynamic. You, you know, I would have been very close to Stephen, and you know, because you're as a growing up. Um, um, but you know, I think you, you kind of. You, you, you maybe don't socialise as much outside of work as you would if you weren't working together. Um, you probably last thing you want to do is see me on the weekend. <laughs> um, well, that's the thing. I mean, I think it's always a danger with the family business is that suddenly it's it's, it's your whole life, and actually at the weekends you're kind of you, you don't want, you don't want to see that part of your life. Maybe well, it's, it's, I think that is a challenge with with family businesses. That you know, can you have a family dinner and not get caught up with the let's say the stresses and strains and uh, you know just what's going on in the work environment and I, I do definitely think it changes that family dynamics it has for me you know be it working for my father or you know working with, with, with Stephen but you know would it change it no it wouldn't change so when you are putting work aside um, what are you doing to kind of just uh, just just be Jack just Jack that's a different well, character yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah well I've got uh, a couple of young kids uh, definitely um, um, keeps me on my toes keeps me busy I've got uh, just turning nine um, um, seven and five um, and uh, you know so they've been with me through the journey our pot stills and the stillery are named after my three daughters um, and uh, you know they're um, 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 they're great and very active on weekends. Um, and for me personally, um, I used to play a lot of rugby. It was my big kind of release. Uh, big into team sports. I've played for 34 years. In my 40th year, um, uh, I kind of hung up my boots for a while and I took up a bit of running. So I'm kind of in training now for the Dublin Marathon. So that's kind of between family, work, and uh, and the marathons definitely keep me busy. I bet. Got marathon <laughs> training fit in, fit in amongst all of that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, how do you find the time? Or do you, is it important to kind of make the time for, for, for things like exercise that a lot of people will say not a priority got to focus on work got to focus on family definitely um, uh, because what I found was 2014 2015 a lot of you know stress and strains probably you know a lot more than it is now to be honest with you because um, uh, the business has evolved I was struggling to to pay for building the distillery um, um, and I was eating and drinking too much not exercising enough and putting a lot of weight um, which then had a knock on effect to actually not de-stressing you but stressing you more um, um, and I I, I have over the last two or three years definitely um, made time for exercise because that's my release and that's the only way uh, pressure valve to, to turn off and, um, and in terms of running uh, it's different to, to, to rugby which is very fixed times and if you, you can't be there you just can't be there but with running there's always time like you know be it early in the morning or if you're traveling you know before your meetings um, uh, there's no fixed time it's just it's your own drive to get out there and do it. Uh, and it's been great for me over the last number of years. So for Teeling itself, uh, you know, what, what kind of milestones are you really looking forward to, to getting to? What is the next big milestone for you? Yeah, so it was funny. So we're into the sixth year. Um, the original five-year business plan we achieved, which is shocking, shocking, <laughs> um, uh, because, you know, business plans are more aspirational than reality, to be honest with you. Um, so we managed to achieve that. We achieved a lot over the five years. And now it's about kind of, um, um, let's say, resetting and going again. And also ensuring that that the staff are as motivated and you have the right resources there. So so we have very ambitious plans for the next five years. Um, our goal is to double our turnover over the next three years. Um, um, and, and that's in the back of, of our ability now that our whiskey has come of age to be able to scale what we have. We were always um, held back by our inventory profile. Um, and now that's changed. Um, 
and hopefully as the in- industry is bigger and we're more established and um, we can really drive our international business to the level that we so want So now that the stuff that's on, on shop shelves is and, and bar shelves is stuff that was made around the corner from yeah. us from us here that puts you on a on a different different level? Well it does because one it, it hopefully our cost of goods comes down but secondly it allows us to have consistency of supply going forward so that we are in full control of our own destiny and we've been laying down a lot of inventory uh, around near uh, 3 million litres um, which equates into a, a lot of bottles of whiskey um, around 12 million bottles of whiskey um, so um, we're set up to um, be able to take advantage of the opportunities we feel are there So that, that target you have what's a doubling turnover within 3 years is that the type of thing you can do by yourself or are you ultimately going to have to partner with one of the, 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 the big international players to to get those distribution de- deals and get in front of the right eyeballs So it's, it's very good question um the biggest market in the world is forest whiskey is the u.s it's nearly you know um um, five million cases the second biggest market is the domestic market around half a million cases so that's the difference and it's growing by nearly as much as 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 ireland is on a a year and year basis so that was a market that you have to succeed in particularly for for a brand that we're aspiring to be um and we felt um uh, our partner that we started off with was not necessarily set up for success for ourselves. So so we made a tough decision in 2017 to change our partner there, um, and we got into bed with um, Bacardi, who's a very big drinks company, um, um, to be able to take advantage of that. And uh, um, 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 So we're planning for that, and I think now we have that route to market in the key markets and our whiskey coming on stream, the chances of success are much, much higher. Given the kind of the, the upstart uh, qualities that are in your DNA, is there a, a kind of a ceiling for, for where you want to get to without undermining those kind of upstart credentials, if that makes sense? Yeah, it's, I think we think about it too much. Um, and we're very super critical. We're like, oh, do, you know, will people um, lose interest in us because we're no longer seen as the small guys and all that kind of stuff like that? But I don't see that as, as the case. I think it's just we're too close to it. Sometimes we're too sensitive. Um, uh, I just think if we keep doing what we're doing and we keep innovating and driving the choice and breadth of the category, um, uh, hopefully we'll keep consumers excited on what we have to do or okay. what we have to offer. So, Jack Teeling, thank you very much for talking to us. No worries. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us today on The Architects of Business. Thanks to our guest, Jack Teeling, our producer, Patrick Hohey, and all of the team here at Joe. Our programme is made in partnership with EY Entrepreneur of the Year. Go to eoy.ie to learn more about the finalists for this year. And don't miss out on past or indeed future editions of The Architects of Business by subscribing for free on iTunes, on your favourite Android podcast app, or you can watch us on YouTube too. While you're at it, check out some of Joe's other podcasts, including the G. AA Hour and our movie show, The Big Review Ski. I'm Ty Genreich. Thank you so much for being with us today, and I hope to see you again soon. Bye bye. The Architects of Business on Joe, in partnership with the EY Entrepreneur of the Year program, telling the story of Ireland's leading entrepreneurs across the island of Ireland.